some things never change. When I was a kid, especially once I was in junior high and high school, our family dinners, which always began every evening promptly at five with all of us at the table, were often troubled affairs. One or both of my parents would start in on something they heard on radio or the TV, something terrible, something that demonstrated how American society, by which they meant white, lower middle class slash middle class working, society, working class society, was coming apart at the seams. My baby boomer parents were not like their peers. They had much more in common with their greatest generation parents than they did with people their own age, and they still do. So to them, the changes of the 1960s and the 1970s were markers of how horribly American society was unraveling and of the darkness of the days in which we were living. And my job, of course, was to argue back. I tried to show on the basis of the facts that no such thing was happening and that on the contrary, if only they would change the way they looked at things, they would see how much better conditions had become, how much more humane they were than they had been in the supposedly idyllic world of the 1950s that they remembered, not with clear eyes, but with the romantic sight of the children they had been then. To me, the 1950s were a perfect horror of conformity, repression, and groupthink. During my Cold War youth, Reagan and his cronies were trying to bring all that back to my absolute disgust and my parents' positive joy. I tried to help them see the problems with this in all the subtlety that a precocious child tends to display, which had the predictable outcome, they doubled down. And I tried to comfort myself by remembering that their parents had told them that Elvis Presley was the devil and that even Ralph Waldo Emerson had remarked upon the fact that each generation viewed the one that follows as a decline as contributing to cultural dissolution. And I promised I would never look at the world that way. And so now here I am. <laughs> at the age that they were then, and I'm torn. <laughs> because what I said I would never let happen has happened. I am highly distressed by the way things have gone. And I have difficulty recognizing the present moment as bearing much of any resemblance to the way the world was just a few decades ago. But is that because I'm more aware now than I was then? Or is it because things really have gone downhill? Are conditions in the United States truly worse now than they were in the 1980s? And if so, for whom? Are they worse now than they were then for people of color and the poor? Or is it the case that such conditions, such desperation, such insecurity, such despair, have extended now to include those who formerly could pretend it was only those people who had to deal with such things, and only because they had brought it on themselves? Did authoritarianism, anti-Semitism, or outright white supremacy and Nazism proudly raise their heads and rally people to their standards in places where such a thing seemed utterly impossible? Was the extent of environmental collapse perceived as clearly back then? And did the specter of climate-related disaster and its horrific effects loom as large? Was the American nation-state in such utter disarray, a laughingstock on the world stage, and a threat to the stability of financial markets, 
to the integrity of representative democracy, and again, to the health of the global environment. Were we as brazenly brutal and nonchalantly vicious to the poor, terrorized, and needy on our borders and around the world, not to mention those being ground to bits in our prisons and other systems, and as accepting of gross inequality and inequity on multiple levels as we've now become? Now, I remember very well the threat of nuclear annihilation that we lived with during the Cold War and of environmental degradation and of social upheaval. I remember AIDS and I remember the terrible covert operations of the Reagan and Bush administrations and how their anti-communism, militarism, and corporatism arguably presented as much of a threat to democracy as the so-called Soviet empire. And I am not romantic about that time. Even so, objectively speaking, it does seem to me that we are in a more precarious place, not only as a nation, but as a planet than we were 30 years ago. Among many other possible examples, I'll take it as representative that I am not making this up, that the Science and Security Board of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists advanced the hands of the doomsday clock to two minutes before midnight this past January. Things are really serious and only becoming increasingly grave. And despite what the Hallmark Channel is selling, we pretty much have no more unironic cultural sentimentality of our previous generations to salve that great wound to our national sense of self. The despair around us is so real and so powerful that it seems we breathe it in place of air now, often in the form of opioids to dull the pain. In other words, the world is once again in crisis. Like the Hebrew exiles to whom Isaiah prophesied, we are in a world where we are lost. We are no one and we are nobody. Like the Israelites to whom Jesus was born, we are occupied and colonized by powers much greater than our own. We don't move freely. We don't determine our own destinies. The rich and the powerful lord it over us and determine our fates with a snap of their fingers. Justice is in short supply. Life is harsh. We are becoming alienated from one another as various economic and social pressures fracture our communities and our ability to appear to one another as people rather than as faceless bodies in a set of interlocking and impersonal systems. All manner of powers and authorities claim our allegiance. Like the exiles of Isaiah and the colonized Israelites of Luke, God, to all appearances, has abandoned us, has turned away from us, has allowed this chaos to swallow us up. But recall Isaiah's prophecy to those in this very condition. The Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to daughter Zion, see, your salvation comes. His reward is with him and his recompense before him. They shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. Salvation is promised to those who have no reason to expect it.
the exiles are to be a holy and redeemed people. Those who are not forsaken, but who are sought out, the way the good shepherd leaves the 99 sheep behind in order to find the one that is lost. What, what kind of God does this? The kind of God promised in this morning's psalm. Unlike the false powers that we're made to worship with our dollars and votes, our warped priorities and values, this is the true God, the God of power, righteousness, justice, and joy, who not only created everything that is, but promises to redeem it, to save it, to bring it into its own flourishing. This God is awesome in the literal sense, a God of unimaginable power. And how does this awesome God appear? As a baby, vulnerable. A baby born to parents in poverty, living under oppression, the way a baby might be born to a woman today detained on our southern border. God? This is God? What kind of a God is it who comes to us this way? The God whose true identity is revealed through a people enslaved in Egypt, through a people exiled in Babylon, through a people occupied by the Roman Empire, through the poor and the oppressed of every time and place, including ours, whose power is made manifest in weakness so that in our weakness, we can find in ourselves the power of the incarnate Savior at work. What is this power? Hope. The power of hope that, as Titus writes in today's epistle, is the hope of life with God. True and full and joyous and eternal life. The kind of life that comes out of the tomb. Life that comes where no life ought to be expected. The way salvation comes through the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of a colonized kid executed by the state in Palestine at a time when everything seemed utterly lost, utterly dark, utterly devoid of meaning. Hope comes in power, even there, to lift us up, to proclaim the one true Lord, the one who casts down the mighty from their thrones and who lifts up the lowly, the one who fills the hungry with good things, sends the rich away empty, and asks us to do the same. The one who has come to Israel because of the promise made to the children of Abraham, which now includes us by the grace of that same God. The God whose will it is to bring joy out of despair, where the saving baby is born. Our trying times don't call for the sentimentality of the way things were or the gentle deceptiveness of the romances of Christmas's past. They call for the iron-backed and well-founded hope of Mary, who looks not backward at what things were, nor around her at what they currently are, but ahead to what they will be, and the peace, strength, and quiet joy to live into that reality, come what may. 
Some things never change. The world comes into crisis. And what our faith teaches us is that when it does, that is precisely the fullness of time. That is the moment when the true God of power, righteousness, and love is born in weakness. A weakness that shows where God's care and concern lies with the least, the last, the lost, and where ours ought also to follow. And when we lose our lives, our lives of crisis and despair, in order to find them in this Christmas hope, the hope that God always comes, is coming, and will always come until the fulfillment of all things, we can live in the world as it is, in a new way, a way that enters into the darkness to bring the light of hope and joy, the light who is coming into the world. Merry Christmas.